Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This episode kicks off a new season uh, slash miniseries with a new theme. It's called The Long Road Home. It covers three films that uh, have a kind of a, a uh, travel theme to them. I get they, you know, they feature roads prominently, I guess you could say. But one of them is a kind of circular road movie. One's a more straightforward road movie. And the other one is a kind of stop-off-the-road movie. But what they really all have in common is these are all projects that Mary Sweeney, David Lynch's editor and his partner for many years, these are all films that she was very deeply involved with. In the case of our first film, today's film that I'm going to cover this month, Lost Highway, she was the editor. This was the first uh, non-Twin Peaks uh, feature that she edited for Lynch. She started with Firewalk With Me. She had edited an episode of the show. She had edited many commercials for him. And this is one where I feel like her particular style that she brings to his work and that she brought out in him really flowers. This wasn't originally recorded for this series, so it's not all going to focus on Mary Sweeney, uh, but that's kind of the framework where I'm I'm putting up these episodes. So the next one will be mo- even more heavily involving her, and then the third will be the most heavily involved uh, with Mary Sweeney of all. And that one will conclude this season and then put this podcast on at least a hiatus uh, for a while. So that that will conclude in June, but we've got three more films to go before that, including this one. Uh, before we get to that, I just want to update on the work I've been up to on my podcast feeds and other Twin Peaks work. Uh, on Lost in the Movies, my other public feed, I published The Power of Nightmares, and uh, that's a documentary by Adam Curtis. I talk about that film, about the war on terror. And then I also published on YouTube my uh, Twin Peaks Conversations episode with the publisher of 25 Years Later, Andrew Grievous. He started that website around the time of the return. We talk about his way into Twin Peaks and what interests him, the theme of the passage of time and and all of that, Uh, not just in the public part on YouTube, but also very heavily in the Patreon back part available to the $5 a month tier, as are all of these monthly conversations. Uh, Also on Patreon, but available to everybody, I I published it there because it's part of a Patreon episode, but it's a public part, is the episode 100 public bonus, the final archive, 40s, 30s, and silent, where I read uh, reviews of older films that I've written in the past, including like Bambi and uh, Three Comrades, Battleship Potemkin, Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, and and some others. So you can check that out, uh, even if you're not a patron. And then the rest of episode 100 should be following soon, where I that will be exclusive to the dollar a month tier, and it will cover uh, some more recent films. And then for my Twin Peaks character series, this is a written series I've been publishing every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, although I just paused it. It'll resume later in the spring. But since the last episode of Twin Peaks Cinema, uh, this is all ranked by screen time, by the way. I published number 61, Renette Pulaski, number 60, Charlie, number 59, Sonny Jim Jones, number 58, uh, Jean Renault, number 57, Mayor Dwayne Milford, number 56, Lana Budding Milford, number 55, Carrie Page, number 54, Candy, as well as Sandy and Mandy, number 53, Philip Gerard, number 52, Eileen Hayward, number 51, Bill Hastings, number 50, Anthony Sinclair, number 49, John Justice Wheeler, number 48, Harold Smith, number 47, Richard Horn, and number 46, Evelyn Marsh. Now, in some cases, these are just basically links to the pieces I wrote back in 2017 before season three, because I started the series then and some of these characters never appeared in season three. Others are revised to reflect the role they played in that third season, and others are completely new because they're completely new season three characters. So this series is now paused. It'll resume eventually with number 45, who I can say here, since it's already announced at the end of the previous entry, will be the log lady. So good place to begin again. But that'll probably be May, June, sometime like that. Meanwhile, you can get advanced entries of uh, all of this character, all of these character studies uh, as a patron on the dollar a month tier. They will always be released at least a month before they go public. So right now I'm up to number 32 on that. So an extra dozen or so entries, I think, depending, you know, some of those are older ones too. So I think about seven or eight uh, newer revised entries that are exclusive to patrons for the moment until the series resumes. So you can check all of that out. And now for our Twin Peaks focus on the film that came out after Firewalk Me, David Lynch's first long form post Twin Peaks work, Lost Highway. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. At your house, don't you remember? No, I don't. 
As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's crazy, man. Call me. I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way they happened. Someone broke in and taped us while we slept. Is that you? Are both of them you? We have to get out of here. Why didn't you tell me anything? It's been a pleasure talking to you. Lost Highway was a 1997 film by David Lynch, and it was, in fact, more or less his follow-up to Twin Peaks. So to kind of screw down this chronology a little bit. In 1990, he made the film Wild at Heart. While he was shooting Twin Peaks the year before, it was released in 1990. Focused a lot on Twin Peaks during this time, uh, directing some episodes and then directing the film Firewalk with Me in 1992. He did also do a sitcom sometime during this period, probably before Firewalk with Me, called On the Air. Uh, He shot the pilot and also wrote some episodes with both Mark Frost and Robert Engels. But in terms of a feature film production, uh, his only one during this time was Firewalk With Me. So then five years went by, more or less, I think four and a half. Uh, Lost Highway came out very early in 1997. It was shot in 95, supposed to come out in 96, I believe. It took half a decade for Lynch to kind of come back from Twin Peaks. And this is what he came back with. It was co-written with Barry Gifford the writer who wrote the novel on which Wild at Heart was based and also co-wrote Hotel Room, this HBO series or uh, episode, I guess. It was supposed to maybe be a series, but I think they only did the one special of these little plays. Him and Gifford collaborated on those. Lost Highway, there's a very strong contrast with Twin Peaks on the surface because this is an L.A. film. This is very much Lynch's first film shooting where he'd lived for a quarter century, ever since he came to the AFI. So he's shooting at home. This is something new for him, basically. It has a very different feel than the sort of moody Pacific Northwest vibe of Twin Peaks or the small town vibe of Blue Velvet or Victorian England and Elephant Man or the otherworldly quasi-Philadelphia in Eraserhead. It's a whole new vibe for Lynch. And It fits into this hip, cool aesthetic that was popular at the time with the rise of Quentin Tarantino. I think Swingers came out the year before. This whole mid-90s thing. He's playing into a whole different milieu with this film. And yet there is a lot that connects it back to Twin Peaks. Thematically, uh, visually, narratively, all these other ways. It really feels like an outgrowth of Twin Peaks which Twin Peaks fans have certainly observed in the past. The story of the film is about Fred Madison, a saxophone player, who is becoming very jealous of his wife. He's having trouble in bed with her and thinks that she's cheating on him. And this just manifests in these long, drawn-out, you could almost call them Antonioni-esque scenes between this couple, simmering tension there with with, uh, Fred and Renee, who is played by Patricia Arquette with brown hair, which will become significant eventually. And these scenes, as I said, you could call them Antonioni-esque. They've got this modernist stylization. They're in this very sleek house. There's these dark corners and red walls and red curtains everywhere, which is definitely a Twin Peaks motif. And there's just this growing alienation and distance. I wouldn't even necessarily say between them because we're seeing it very much through Fred's eyes. And occasionally we maybe get a sense that this is all a little bit overwrought. We're not sure. We're getting an intense emotional experience, but we're not sure how much is really to do with Renee versus just going on in Fred's own head. As this goes on for a while, they receive these videotapes and big envelopes on their doorstep. And when they slide it in the VCR, they see black and white video footage of their house. The first tape is just outside, and then the second one, there's a view looking down on them in their bed, moving through the house. So they're very chilled. They 
call the cops, and it's a very humorous lynchian scene. Cliched cops bantering and saying weird things, and proving that they really have no clue what the hell is going on here. They they can't help them out. This all comes to head at a party where Fred sees his wife with a, it's It's not even like he notices this in the corner. It's right in front of him. This guy is hitting on his wife, dancing with her, making faces at Fred that are really maybe innocent, but pretty hard to read that way. It seems like something's going on. But of course, we're seeing this condition by his perspective. So Fred goes to get a drink for uh, for his wife. And he notices across the room this man, this strange man with a white face, pancake makeup, moving across towards him through the party, eyes fixated on him. And he tells him, I'm at your house right now, this little man. And he pulls out a phone, one of those old 90s with the antenna type uh, phones. And Fred Madison calls the house, voice picks it up, and it's the guy's voice and standing right there in front of him, talking on the other line of the phone. One of the great lynch scenes. This guy is known as the mystery man. He totally spooks Fred. Fred goes back to his house thinking somebody was, must be there, and uh, he can't find anyone. But he puts another videotape in the VCR. He's got another envelope there waiting for him. There's a long sequence of him and his wife kind of wandering through the corridors and the bedrooms. There's an awesome shot of smoke snaking up from behind a piece of furniture, very spooky. And then he puts in this other videotape. He's watching it. This time the camera goes all the way inside, keeps going to the bedroom and it finds him uh, in the image on the TV that he's watching, sitting on the floor with his wife's body all chopped up around him, really bloody, and there's flashes of it in color, but it's mostly this black and white image. And then it flashes to this jail where the police are punching him in the face, and he's saying to them, please tell me I didn't kill my wife. So then we hear an off-screen voice talking about how he's sentenced to death, like a judge's voice, that he's been convicted of murdering his wife. And then to kind of speed things along here, the Spain the the film changes radically mid-course, where Fred is having these seizures in his cell, and somehow another person appears in the cell in his place. But is it another person, or is it Fred inside this guy's head? This guy's named Pete Dayton. He's a 24-year-old kid, still lives with his parents, gotten into a little trouble with the law in the past, I think car theft. He works as a mechanic for a place where Richard Pryor is the manager. So he goes back to work. People are telling him he's changed somehow. But w again, we're like, we're just seeing this. He, there's no moment where he steps aside and whispers like, I used to be Fred Madison or something. Or, gee, I have no idea why I lived in that cell. My life has been a continuous life as Pete Dayton. There's just this weird instinctive understanding that this is somehow a continuation of Fred simply because he ended up in the cell and because of the montage where he's having the seizure. So we see uh, Pete going out with his girlfriend and his friends, and then he encounters a gangster named Mr. Eddie at this garage where he works. And Mr. Eddie has him fix a car, and then they go for a ride, and he sees Mr. Eddie beat this guy up for tailgating. It's based on a real encounter that uh, David Lynch had with Michael J. Anderson in the car where somebody passed him and after tailgating him, and Lynch was like, I just got other things to do. I can't deal with this guy now but I'm seething inside. And then sure enough, it came out in this film, in this scene. So this character, Mr. Eddie, played by Robert Loggia, he is also known as Dick Laurent. The cops comment on him at some point, as that being his name. And we'll come back to that later on. So the other actors, if I hadn't mentioned, Patricia Arquette also plays Alice, who is a girlfriend of Mr. Eddie. And she's blonde this time, looks like the same person, but somewhat different personality. She's a little more openly flirtatious and beguiling pete and uh, alice have an affair and then they decide to commit a robbery thinking that mr eddie might be on to them and they got to get away and then he begins to think that maybe alice is setting him up they have this scene where they make love in the desert song to the siren playing by this mortal coil and uh, then she kind of leaves him high and dry just saying uh, you'll never have me walks away and then he uh, goes into this cabin, the mysteries man there, and he's Fred again at this point. So the whole film is just going into madness at this point, even more than it already has been. If there's been a structure it's been following, then it seems to have pretty thoroughly abandoned it here. And so he goes off, Fred goes off to find uh, Renee in the uh, in the Lost Highway Hotel with, uh, again, a Robert Loggia character, this time known as Dick Laurent. And uh, the first line of the movie is, Dick Laurent is dead. So the film ends after Fred kills uh, Dick Laurent, throws him in the back of the car with the help of the mystery man. Uh, Fred races to his own house. It's the morning. He goes up to a buzzer, buzzes in, and when it's it clicks, he says, Dick Laurent is dead. So apparently he was the voice at the beginning of the film. Although if you listen closely, that voice in the beginning sounds like Robert Loggia. Make of that what you will. So Fred drives off into the night, into the desert, uh, his head exploding basically once again. 
So that's the movie. And even from that description, some of the Twin Peaks similarities emerge to the fore. These ideas of double identities, splits of characters, the blonde and the brunette, which we see obviously with Laura and Maddie, but also I think with Laura and Renette in interesting ways that play out in Firewalk with me. We have this character who has a externalized spirit that's haunting them that is arguably part of their own psyche, a projection, a manifestation of their own deep-set issues. In Twin Peaks' case, it's Leland with Bob, and in this case, it's the mystery man with Fred Madison. And this is probably the element of Lost Highway that Twin Peaks fans have commented on the most. It's interesting to consider because on the show Twin Peaks, Bob is presented within this whole lore and mythology as a spirit in the woods, and uh, we... We have some sense of where he comes from and how he operates, the kind of rules of it in a sci-fi kind of way. And Leland is almost more of a passive character who's taken over. We don't have a sense of, you know, what's coming out of Leland that draws Bob to him. Whereas in Lost Highway, we have the jealousy shown very independently of the media, of the uh, mystery man. And when Fred asks him, how did you get in my house? The mystery man says, I was invited. It's not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. We also get shots where like the mystery man hands Fred a knife and then suddenly we cut away, we cut back and he's gone. So it's like just reinforcing this idea that this is a psychodrama in a kind of noir trappings, which is pretty cool, I think, and, and plays upon the idea introduced in Firewalk with me. This is definitely one of my favorite Lynch films. They're all It's hard to choose favorites, but this would definitely be way up there for me. Something else that's also interesting to consider is how this film relates forward to season three of Twin Peaks. To me, season three, uh, if you're going to compare it to one other Lynch work outside of the Twin Peaks universe, there's a probably apocryphal quote where Lynch says that Lost Highway is in the Twin Peaks universe, whatever that means. If you're going to compare season three to one Lynch film, it's Lost Highway. That's the film that feels most in its spirit, particularly the Mr. C stuff where he's traveling along these roads, the headlights shining on the road, illuminating the winding roads, particularly which we see in the opening and closing shots of uh, of Lost Highway. Mr. C has some grit to him that's kind of similar to Fred Madison in some way. The relationship that he has with Bob, very ambiguous, where it feels like they're almost more partners maybe. We don't see that much of Bob in season three, but there's definitely a feeling of Mr. C as a powerful actor in his own right. That feels pretty similar to Fred and the Mystery Man. And the idea of this character being branched off from these two different people, we have Dougie and Mr. C, same actor playing them both, ostensibly rooted in from the same source, but there's a uh, how would I put it, somehow totally different personalities leading different lives, very different environments, even the contrast of the sunny and the dark. Fred's world is very moody and interior, living in the shadows. Pete's life is, at least initially, brighter out in the sunshine, very suburban. He's living in this grassy backyard. There's a great shot of him lying back there. He looks over the fence, sees a little swimming pool, and it's like, wow, I'm out of that prison, the literal prison, and uh, been given a new life. What happens now? Same sort of feeling with Dougie in a way, the sun-baked valley feeling to it. Part 18 of season three, the last episode, feels particularly lost highway. These shots of the highway with a couple driving down them, a man and a woman, in silence, you know, as you see with Alice and Pete in Lost Highway, and then both Carrie and Cooper and uh, Diane and Cooper in these very similar types of shots, just something iconic about it. Driving through the desert there. And of course, also in part eight of uh, Twin Peaks season three, you have those incredible desert scenes in the White Sands Desert in New Mexico. Only times we see deserts in Lynch films are Dune and uh, Wild at Heart, I guess, Lost Highway, season three. So these desert images do pop up. You think of Lynch often as like the woods or Hollywood, but he does have some interesting uses of the desert in there as well. Also some 90s commercials and music videos are set in the desert with this similar kind of impression that they create. So you have the desert stuff, you have the long driving in part 18, and just the way that Kyle McLaughlin performs Richard, the Cooper of Part 18. I said that Mr. C has some elements of Fred in him, but Fred maybe emerges as kind of a villain, like we discover maybe he's the bad guy of the movie, uh, even though he's our protagonist, but he doesn't come off as like the big bad the way Mr. C does. The version of Fred that Cooper is most similar to, or rather the version of Cooper that Fred is most similar to, is that Richard figure. The one who comes out of the Red Room in Part 18, greets Diane, they go for their drive, they have the weird sex at the motel, and then he wakes up the next morning, goes and fights Carrie Page, drives her to Twin Peaks. He's pure Fred Madison. 
the grimacing and the intensity. That might be the part of season three that feels the most like Lost Highway to me. It's going to be a big feature of my journey through Twin Peaks video, Lost Highway and its kind of connection. I don't want to oversell it, but certainly the montage that I created so far a few months before this recording, that uses some particular Lost Highway motifs that occurred to me while I was watching season three. Some additional observations I had, some of the related to Twin Peaks and some not. This film has a lot of celebrity cameos or small parts, oftentimes with musicians playing the role. We have Richard Pryor, Henry Ra Harry Rollins, uh, Marilyn Manson, Gary Busey. I, Busey's a little more important because he's playing a father, but still doesn't have much to do. They're just more for this more there for this weird presence, you know, like, hey, oh, that, that person, you know, just making these kind of associations. Of course, the mystery man himself is played by uh, Robert Blake, who uh, was accused later and actually put on trial, and many people feel unjustly acquitted of killing his wife, which is very strange to consider watching this part, where he's basically like the human manifestation of the urge to kill your wife. And then f I think four years after this movie came out, there he is in the headlines, just one of those eerie, weird lynch. I don't know if you'd call it synchronicities or coincidences or what, but it's certainly spooky. You have all of these stunt casting anyways in Lost Highway, and you see that in season three as well a little bit of that maybe in season two but not so much the lynch stuff it's really more of a season three phenomenon you have john savage popping up for literally one scene you have a lot of musicians performing at the roadhouse some of them make appearances uh the only precedent that uh, i can think of that for the original twin peaks is in firewalk with me with david bowie as philip jeffries of course uh he has the song I'm Deranged at the opening and closing of Lost Highway as well, which seems worth noting as we're seeing that shot going down the highway. Really jittery. Also, I like the fact, speaking of that shot, the car is like straddling the, the divider of the road. It's kind of on both sides of the road, which certainly seems to have implications for this film. You know, the car straddling just as the, the people themselves are, were kind of between these two people in the film and also looking forward the doubles or doubling of cooper in season three so if celebrity cameos point forward to season three so does the choice of music although angela badalamenti did score this film the vast majority of the music is uh, selected by trent reznor it's like current pop music basically techno or heavy metal or mostly alternative rock type of type of music 1997 vintage and of course nine inch nails is in uh season three trent reznor appears himself so both of these films are kind of connected musically and lost highway really introduces a period where lynch has created a lot of music himself he didn't really do that much before. He did collaborate with Angelo Badalamenti to create the Julie Cruz albums. But after Lost Highway, moving on from there, he does his own musical projects, often with John Neff. He releases albums under his own name, and it's a new direction that he goes in. This opens that part of Lynch's career, even though this film was a flop at the time. I do think the soundtrack actually sold really well. This is such a 90s film. You've got Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Rammstein, of course, and Lynch actually directed a video for them for one of the songs that's in this movie. And uh, also, casting-wise, it's interesting to note that Jack Nance from Twin Peaks appears briefly in this film. He's a fellow mechanic of Pete's. This was his last film appearance before he died. And uh, Balthazar Getty, who's in this, will later show up in season three as Red, the drug dealer. So you have kind of connections going in both directions in that way. It's interesting to think of Fred Madison as Lynch's first anti-hero. Um, you know, how do you define an anti-hero? There's obviously different definitions. I know Martha Nockhamson has her own definition in the book Television Rewired that we talked about back in August. Considering Lost Highways in noir, or I guess in neo-noir, or surrealist noir, whatever you want to call it, Fred Madison is this kind of doomed protagonist, deeply troubled, tormented, certainly not heroic in any conventional sense. The only Lynch protagonist who I would compare from a previous Lynch film to this would be probably Henry from Eraserhead. Perhaps Laura Palmer from Firewalk With Me, but I think she's clearly more on the positive side of that story. The positive figure who's resisting the, the darkness at times more successfully than others. But the only precedent, uh, I think, for Fred is Henry for killing his child at the end of Eraserhead. But I think he comes off a little too innocent and childlike to even be really an appropriate precedent. So really, Fred Madison does feel like a breakthrough in that regard for Lynch. And then I think later you can look at maybe Diane Selwyn as an anti-hero as well. And who knows what to make of Mr. C. I mean, he is the protagonist in his part of the story, but there's an overall story where he can be more clearly delineated as the bad guy. And then I think part 18, as I said, is when you get back to the sense of a much more ambiguous hero. The difference there is we've been trained to view 
Cooper as a hero. So his weird, ambiguous status in that episode comes off strangely. We're not quite sure how to accept it. With Fred Madison from the beginning, we may be with him, but we're not looking at him to do anything heroic per se. I've always seen Lost Highways branching off from three main developments, rather, in Twin Peaks that were forced on Lynch by the circumstances of making a TV show. One of them is telling different stories and trying to bring them together on an ensemble, ongoing TV show. You're going to have these different narrative threads. And in Lost Highway, you have basically two different stories that he finds kind of imaginative ways to draw connections between and link together into a single film. You also have the whole idea, as already mentioned, about... Lynch needing an external figure for whatever reason. Maybe it's network censorship. They can't really discuss incest on a TV show. Or if it's just a dramatic development, how do we keep the story going if Leland's gone? Or maybe just Mark Frost's influence, his interest in the supernatural. You have that Bob figure emerging in Twin Peaks and taking on a certain role. And that leads, I think, directly to Lost Highway where Lynch finds a way, as he does in Firewalk With Me, to bring that idea more back into his conception of human behavior and representation on screen. And then finally, you have I think this idea that comes out of Firewalk with me of like the female perspective that you get a little hint of in Blue Velvet, but it becomes more explicit in Firewalk with me. And so Lost Highway is definitely a very male focused work. Most of the perspective is focused through a, a man's eyes, but you have a sense that he's not getting the whole picture, I think, more strongly than you do in some of the earlier Lynch films, that there's another consciousness going on there. You get it a little bit in Wild at Heart as well with some of the scenes where Lulu's by herself. Not surprising that after this, Lynch goes on to have primarily female protagonists in Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire and the rest of his, I guess you could call it, L.A. trilogy. So there's a consciousness in this film of the hollowness of Fred's vision, and I think you see that in season three as well, that there's something missing, and the film is conscious of what's missing and knows what it is, or the show and Twin Peaks case. The missing piece, so to speak, is Firewalk with me, and the missing piece in Lost Highway is Renee and Alice's story from their own point of view, but you do get a sense that it exists there, even if we can't quite access it. This film's awareness and the way it leads into season three, I think the interesting thing about season three is that you have the figure of Diane, who is kind of a uh, representation of what's missing from the rest of the story in a number of ways. It's a very interesting narrative strategy that's <laughs> well there'll be I'll, I'll be talking about that a lot in uh, upcoming podcasts but also Journey Through Twin Peaks that's going to be a huge theme. I really think that character manages to bring in sideways what's otherwise absent from the show uh, in comparison with Firewalk Me and maybe even the original series where there's a little more of a balance between the male and female points of view in seasons 1 and 2. So a few more observations to mention before we close the section out. There's a sleek man-made aesthetic to this film. There's no longer that woodsy feeling of Twin Peaks. It's the first film that Lynch shot with Peter Deming, who would shoot season three and pretty much all of Lynch's later work, other than, I think, Straight Story. Stylistically, there's a big difference here, though, from season three. I think probably in part due to Mary Sweeney, Lynch's editor and his partner for many years. This was her second film editing form after Firewalk With Me. You can see a certain stylistic pattern also in her own work. I've seen a short film by her, an avant-garde short that has the same impressionistic, fluid, flowing kind of imagery, the way she uh, dissolves between the shots there. So some of this could have been just where Lynch was at in his career at this point. But I think even with something that's more fast-paced and rock-fueled like Wild at Heart, you're still seeing a transition towards this. And it's really from Firewalk With Me on that you get this beautiful, languid, fluid style of assembling scenes together. Lost Highway has quite a lot of that. Spiders crawling on the walls, these abstractions, these lights flickering. You have things like that for a few seconds, maybe in Blue Velvet, those little montages where they're like very delineated from the rest of the narrative, but they're like just, Lost Highway is just imbued with that type of filmmaking throughout. You don't get that at all in season three. It's much more blocky and straightforward, almost a little dry in some ways. It calls back to Lynch's earlier works for me. That's how I see it. Dune and Elephant Man and Eraserhead. That's an interesting difference between Twin Peaks Season 3 and uh, Lost Highway in particular. One of the other narrative elements that ties them together is the figure of Mr. Eddie. He's this larger-than-life gangster who has really no ethnic or historic roots. The American film presentation of the gangster, I think, undergoes some interesting evolutions over time. It arises out of these immigrant communities in the early 1900s, Italians, the Irish, in these urban centers. They have these criminal mobs that organize and come together. And then around mid-century, post-war period, up 
probably until The Godfather, which takes it back in a more uh, explicitly ethnic direction. You have these non-specific gangsters who are really more like powerful bosses or politicians within these cities. They don't have a, how would I put it? There's nothing identifying them as uh, a particular group or community, like a niche. They're just all American. A lot of noir films, you'll get these films in the 40s and 50s as opposed to the 30s where you have implicitly or explicitly Italian or Irish gangsters played by Paul Muni and Scarface or Jimmy Cagney in his movies, the Warner films. But no, by the 40s and 50s, they're much more generic in a way. And Mr. Eddie is a lot like that. And you see that in season three as well with the Mitchums, where, you know, the Mitchums, Mr. Eddie, Dick Laurent, they all have these kind of waspy names even. They're not coming out of some tradition they're just archetypes. I find that really intriguing. Frank Booth has an element of that too in Blue Velvet. Waspy name, he's this figure in this town who's the big bad, the gangster. He's running some sort of organized crime ring, but there's no sense of the context out of which this arose. It's just something that, you know, hey, it's a town, there's a dark side, a seedy side, etc. But historically, they were immigrants without much political power, economic power, using their ties and their connections within their communities to tap into some kind of market that wasn't being fulfilled elsewhere. But that's not at all what you get in the, the these Lynch presentations of the gangsters. Archetypal big G gangsters is, is what you get, which is kind of funny. Of course, before we go, I do want to say the scene of making love at the Lost Highway Hotel in the desert. Very reminiscent of Part 18, where Cooper and Diane stop at the motel. Just the, not the way the scene is executed, but just the situation and the location. There's also matching numbers 25 on the hotel room, and also in the room in the corridor upstairs where Pete goes to wash his face after killing the guy. That reminds me of how uh, the number 6 appears throughout Twin Peaks. I mean, a lot of numbers appear and reappear through Twin Peaks, but I noticed that uh, when you look at Lynch's numerology, interest, we don't necessarily always see the number six as six. We see it on the telephone pole, for example, at Carrie Pages and in Twin Peaks. But there are other times where we see numbers that uh, if you use the numerological method, as I understand it, you're adding up the numbers, the separate numbers in a number. So like 16, you would add the one in a six and it would be reduced down to seven. So looking at it that way, you have the six on the telephone pole, but then you also have the 15 on the plug that Cooper almost goes through and is pushed away from by NATO. You add that up, five plus one equals six. And then if you add up the numbers on the Palmer House, keep adding it up and reducing it till it's one digit, that's also six. Super interesting to me. This is something I figured out while editing the new Journey Through Twin Peaks chapters. Really intrigued to explore that further and what its implications are. You get a much simpler, straightforward version of that here, where it's the exact same number on these doors, leading you to think, oh, okay, there is a connection here. Like, there's times in Lost Highway where I just look and I say, this is meditative abstraction. This isn't something we're supposed to put into concrete terms. But then there's other points where it's like, no, Lynch enjoys teasing us into thinking, oh no, there's like a hidden meaning here as well. So he kind of oscillates between the two, which drives some people nuts, but I enjoy it. Sometimes I enjoy it and it drives me nuts. Let me know what you have to say about Lost Highway and Twin Peaks. I feel like this is just the opening of a conversation. So much to talk about here. And I'm popping in to add this the following week after I made this podcast public. I forgot to include the feedback. I got a few pieces of feedback uh, back when this was originally recorded for patrons. So I want to share that here. So before we move on, let's listen to what some of the listeners to this had to say. Andrew says, The Palmer House in Part 18 is very much like the cabin in Lost Highway. Note how the lady is named Alice, or so she says. Was she lying? My latest half-baked theory is that Lost Highway depicts Leland's travails in the Black Lodge after his death. He's like Richard Cooper. This lends new depth to the you'll never have me line. Laura arrives in various forms to help Leland, but he poisons her. And Jake responds, I see Lost Highway as a Faust story, with the mystery man as Satan. In that sense, I think Fred gains as well as loses by embracing what appears to be his dark side, even if we don't know what he's metamorphosing into in the final shot. The story kicks off with him putting his jazz ahead of his relationship. And by the end, he's moved on to another kind of art. The lover's head in the coffee table is basically one of Lynch's sculpture installations. Another link to Peaks, thinking of the head-body assemblage at the start of season three. Or indeed, Laura, wrapped in plastic. The crime scene at the finish is shot like a gallery opening, inverting the artsy part at the start, before Fred was totally at a loss, whereas now he's the creator whose work everyone is marveling at. Uh, sorry, inverting the artsy party at the start. So saying Fred was totally at a loss there, but now he's the creator whose work everyone is marveling at in that same space. One other odd Peaks connection, which occurred to me listening just now. The mystery man's It's Been a Pleasure Talking to You almost precisely echoes Margaret's sign-off from the last of her Bravo introductions, 
It has been a pleasure speaking to you. Maybe Lynch just likes the phrase, or maybe there's something more to it. On the surface, these characters have nothing in common, but then again, both are oracles, like, for instance, Mulholland Drive's cowboy, who can't easily be positioned on a good, evil axis. The apparent contrast calls to mind one of Lynch's more troubling bits of potted wisdom, which I think of any time anyone proposes a straightforwardly, quote, moral reading of his work. The more darkness you gather up, the more light you can see, too. I love the idea of the guy's head being bashed into the uh, coffee table as like an art gallery piece, <laughs> sculpture of some sort. It really is. I mean, literally in the sense that Lynch sits there and lovingly goes over every detail, placing the little drops of blood and everything on the people in his movies. So it's... It's great. Andrew says, also submitting this natural born killers clip for consideration, re-inspiration for Lost Highway. And that's a clip of Juliet Lewis seducing this mechanic, uh, pulling him onto, onto like the hood of a Corvette, hard rock playing in the background. So very, definitely very Lost Highway. She's got like kind of a blonde wig, it looks like in that scene. I can't remember what her hair is like in that movie, but they've got clips interspersed of like it looks like Rodney Dangerfield's eyes he plays her abusive father in that movie in, in flashback so yeah interesting bit there it's been a long time since I've seen natural born killers maybe worth revisiting at some point is a part of a kind of a Lynch comparison also to Wild at Heart as well obvious most obvious comparison probably that young outlaw couple on the run although Sarah and Lula aren't really a, well Sailor is but Lula's not really an outlaw they're definitely the nicest of that like early 90s <laughs> young lovers on the lamb genre Andrew said you buried the lead on that natural born killers connection Joel talking about a clip that he shared that I talked about on the podcast the mechanic is played by Balthazar Getty and I laughed said I didn't even notice so I was trying to look at that clip and be like oh well they're making out on top of an old convertible or something so i guess that's the compare i didn't even notice that the character was actually straight from lost highway and that's why he was drawing the uh, connection between the natural born killers clip and that michael chatham says the split between laura and renette Yes, this is something I consider really profound, especially with her presentation in season three. Her direct connection to the Blue Rose leads me to wonder if Laura Renette is the original split in the psyche of Laura. Next time you watch Firewalk with me, note the abstracted, yet incredibly large, Blue Rose at the Pink Room when Renette first materializes. I swear that scene contains so much of the etiology of the Red Room delusion. That's really interesting. The abstracted, incredibly large Blue Rose. I'll check that out. I don't know if they me he means the overall effect of the lighting or if there's actually a blue rose shape on the wall there, but worth looking into again. Now, as a bonus, I have another section I want to share. This was part of my Twin Peaks Reflection series where I compared storylines from the original Twin Peaks series to other Lynch works, Twin Peaks books, or episodes of The Return. In this case, obviously, I'm connecting it to a Lynch film, Lost Highway. And uh, we'll talk about what storyline that is in particular in a moment. This was recorded separately, so it wasn't originally meant to go with this. So there will be some redundancies. And I talk for quite a bit about the storyline itself before I get to the Lost Highway connection. But I thought I should include this here as a whole since it was published this way on Patreon. And now the whole thing is available to the public as footnote to this episode. Another 10 minutes or so of discussion around Twin Peaks and around Lost Highway and the connections between them. And I should note there are a few references in here to the film Angel Face, which was an Otto Preminger noir that I covered as part of my Twin Peaks cinema series. That is a Patreon exclusive, so I'll link that below. That relates both to this particular storyline and to Lost Highway by, you know, that same route. So uh, that, that's why that comes up there, because this was originally part of an episode that included that. But uh, now you can access that as a dollar a month patron, so... Look for the link below. For the storyline I want to discuss, again, something that stretches the bounds of Twin Peaks, is the Evelyn Marsh saga. And this is going to make an interesting segue, not just to the piece of Lynch media that I want to compare it to, but also to the Twin Peaks cinema subject, Angel Face, another film that also takes uh, many of the same elements, even more so than Lost Highway. This mansion, this guy brought on as a mechanic uh, who is, you know, sort of out of his league, and it does so many more interesting things with this, certainly than the Evelyn Marsh story. I think in terms of Lost Highway, what Lost Highway does is it takes a basic noir architecture and it does all these amazing things around the edges with it. It expands, it sort of morphs out from it. But Angel Face within that construct is just 
it does amazing things with that. The Evelyn Marsh saga is essentially a classic noir tale. As I said, it's got elements of soap in it. And I think that partly has to do with James. He's just really a weak character for this type of story. Whatever you think of him overall, a lot of people feel he's kind of weak generally. For this particular approach, you need somebody like a Robert Mitchum in Angel Face. Or, you know, it's interesting in Lost Highway, we'll get to that, that those actually aren't the strongest protagonists in some ways, but they still work for that story in a way that I don't think James quite does. This is being brought up now in episode 21, again, for the same reason Evelyn Marsh was, because this is an episode that's heavily concentrated on that uh, subplot. A quick summary of what it entails would be, uh, James flees trouble in Twin Peaks, only to find more of the same in an unnamed town where a seductive married woman takes him in, ostensibly to fix her husband's car, although he's soon embroiled in a love affair murder case, and larger web of entrapment. The characters involved in this are James, Evelyn, Malcolm, Donna, Ed, and Laura. Um, the last two pretty tangentially. Laura is just brought up when uh, James is talking about why he left Twin Peaks. And uh, I think Maddie, not named, but she's sort of brought up as well. And then Ed gives him money while he's out there, but he's involved in his own uh, drama at this time. Plus, of course, there's brief characters like the husband, the cops, and the bartender. This is one of the smaller uh, casts in the storyline. So many other storylines at least bring in other characters for a scene or two, but because this is isolated and kind of off the map, we really only get a few of the central Twin Peaks figures uh, here. It's, it's interesting, just as a thought experiment, to imagine Cooper or, I don't know, Ben Horn or somebody somehow getting involved with this story. It almost makes it more intriguing in a way to think about like, how would they cross paths with this? But of course, it's so pushed off from the main thread of action, which is one of the main criticisms people have of it. It lasts for a surprising number of episodes, uh, six actually, episodes eight through 23. It's mostly over by 22, but they're still bringing it up in episode 23. And I've heard Twin Peaks podcasts where people talk about it in like episode 20, I guess, 21 when she tells him what she's done and he he runs off They're like wow that was pointless but i'm glad it's over and then there's a whole other episode after that where it's still being dragged out um, so what happens during that is um i mean it's not worth going into too much detail about there's there's not that much to pick apart just in isolation it's more interesting to talk about uh, in relation to those other works. But essentially, we spend several episodes with her kind of flirting with him a little, teasing, drawing information out of him, and then giving him the information she wants to give, which is all from this perspective that she's being um, abused by Jeffrey, her wealthy husband. Malcolm is supposedly her brother. He's like the chauffeur who keeps popping in to egg James on. What always struck me as weird about this storyline is if you're setting this up, the payoff should be that they actually get him to murder the husband. Now, that would be a pretty big ask for a character like James, both in the sense of how James's personality is, and also just an idea of this is a character we're supposed to sympathize with and like. You, you wouldn't want to have him murdering the husband, even if he thinks it's the right thing to do, or even like considering it or something. But there's no buildup. He just stands there as a witness the whole time. They tell him things. He barely reacts. Oh, oh, oh. And then they kill the husband and they're like, he did it. So there's no like tension. There's no back and forth. There's no drama to it. Uh, the, he's just there to be present. And if they're going to set him up as the killer, they really don't need to tell him anything anyways. They could just kill the husband while he's around and then tell the cops, oh, all this stuff happened and have James be like, well, no, I didn't do it and frame him that way. Like why they need to be feeding him this information if he's only there to serve as a body that they can point to and blame never really made sense to me. Um, it just, it, it seems like very weak plotting and kind of a big hole in the story. So, uh, I, I even wondered at some times on like, you know, third or fourth rewatch, like, wait a second, is James actually, did he put something in the car that, that killed Jeffrey? Because Jeffrey goes right off after he's been working on it and he's kind of nervous around him. And I don't think that's the intention that again, that would have been more interesting. I don't know if it would have been very consistent with the character, but it would have been compelling at least. So in order to kind of highlight what doesn't really work about this story, we can look at other works. And we're going to start with Lost Highway because that is the Lynch film that not only has the most similarities, but in some ways is almost modeled upon it. And I credit this observation to Cameron Cloutier. Uh, he's the first one, the obnoxious and anonymous channel, Twin Peaks Thoughts of the Day, who brought this up to me saying, you know, people say Lynch hated the, uh, wouldn't have been involved with like 
the mid-season stories and Evelyn Marsh, but he must have liked something about it because Lost Highway is basically the same plot. And it's true, you have a young man who's, well, there's much more going on in Lost Highway than that, but certainly during like the middle to second part, second half of the movie, uh, you have a young, not very communicative, sort of um, not exactly mopey, but like withdrawn young man who has been through a traumatic experience and he's working as a mechanic and a guy is, uh, in this case, a guy rather than a woman is like, oh, can you work on my car, fix something for me? And uh, it, that's how he meets this seductive older woman. I don't know how much older, but she's she seems older. You know, he's actually, 20, if you look at his age, they show his age at one point when his parents are coming to get him out of jail. He's actually 24, but he lives at home with his folks he doesn't seem to have much of it. He just goes out with his friends on the weekends, like a you know high schooler going to the to or more college age, but going to like you know these clubs or bars. Actually, I think he goes bowling and then just hangs out at like the club within the bowling place. So you know the, he he seems more like a teenager in some ways. She seems older, more sophisticated. She's been through more, and so there's this kind of gap between them. There, she's a blonde woman. And uh, she tells him that she's in trouble. She gets him to help her out and try to attack this guy. Eventually, uh, it ends up killing him uh, in in like a robbery so that they can escape together. So there is a similar dynamic there. And the main thing they have in common is this wealthy woman bringing this uh, young mechanic, stringing this young mechanic along with her. So that is an interesting thread through that. Now, of course, what's going on in Lost Highway is much more complicated. This this young character is actually somehow connected to a whole different character. You know, he's played by Balthazar Getty and this other character is played by Bill Pullman, but they're implicitly the same person. He appears in his death row cell and then later at the end, Bill Pullman pops back up right in place of where Balthazar Getty was. So there's a sense that these are entwined, that the Balthazar Getty character is like a projection of the Bill Pullman character who uh, murdered his wife in a jealous rage. And so you're getting this much richer tapestry. And I feel like something like that could have gone on in Twin Peaks with the idea of Laura. I think Cameron, again, he's got all these interesting ideas about this supply. I think he mentioned the idea of like, what if he had gone off and met like Teresa's sister or something? Like what if there had been some actual tie-in? And I think a lot of times fans fill in that gap themselves. I know Watching the second half, I kept thinking, okay, something there's something with Annie where it's going to be a twist. Oh, like John Justice Wheeler, he's not really this just laid back, jovial cowboy guy. He's like working with Windermere or something. There's there's a whole other element to this, and then there really isn't. It's just kind of like, oh, that's it. But you know, so fan theories kind of fill that gap, alternate uh, versions of what we see, and that's that's interesting to consider in that way. I think again, as I mentioned, the James figure is very flat and. In a lot of ways, Pete, the Balthazar Getty character, is is flat in this as well. He's a little moodier in a more convincing way. Um, and, of course, he gets to play Red later in Twin Peaks, who is very, <laughs> a very interesting character and much more like the Mystery Man or Mr. Eddie. So that's an interesting sort of graduation for that actor from that character to the, to, to the more villainous one. He works more, I think, both because of his conjunction with the uh, Bill Pullman character, who's also not super charismatic, like... But they have this intensity to them, both of them, particularly Bill Pullman in this film, just this seething rage just beneath the surface, whereas James is just so blank. And I think I've seen James Marshall, I mean, certainly in person, he's more engaging. I've seen performances where he's more lively. Something about how he was directed and slotted into this role, it just kind of brought out the worst in everyone. Like it, it, it. Uh, you know, I think there's parts of the series where James works better than others, but this is kind of his his low point here. It's possible that Lynch, I don't think he had anything to do with the conception of this story. I think it was Harley Payton who was taking credit or blame for it and said that it was based on uh, the noir film Angel Face. So I don't think Lynch had anything to do with the conception, but it is possible he saw fragments of this. Supposedly he was there when Annette McCarthy was cast. Uh, he helped cast the actress who plays Mar uh, Evelyn Marsh. She said, oh yeah, he was there and he was helpful in certain ways and stuff like that. So he was aware of it. And who knows, maybe it planted a seed that ultimately bloomed into Lost Highway, which would make the whole Evelyn Marsh thing worthwhile in retrospect, I guess. And finally, here's an excerpt from my Journey Through Twin Peaks video essay series 
uh, from a part that focuses on Mary Sweeney and David Lynch. I've also released this, I'll link it below separately as a standalone video about the collaboration between Lynch and Sweeney. And this is the part where I play a long, like three minute clip from Lost Highway, and I sprinkle some observations throughout it. So most of it is audio from the film, but as I let the scene play out, because the point is to show Sweeney's editing, which obviously you can't hear <laughs> listening to it in podcast form, but you'll hear the sound texture and my observations about where this film stands for them. So that'll be a coda to this episode before we offer a trailer for the next one. Lynch's previous film, Lost Highway, was less immediately successful. But in retrospect, it appears as the opening salvo of a surrealist L.A. trilogy. A full representation of a zeitgeist Lynch himself had helped to indirectly shape. And one of the clearest stylistic harbingers of 21st century cinema. The ways in which this work stands out from some of the other Sweeney-edited Lynch features, the aloof cool of the characters, the closed-off male protagonists, the more singular, narrow focus of the first act, at least, all only serves to highlight the breaks that Lynch has made. free and adventurous he has become as a storyteller and a stylist, and the ways that his new rhythm both reflects and amplifies these breaks. who? Her name is Renee. If she told you her name is Alice, she's lying. And your name. What the fuck is your name? That's it for this episode. The next one, as you can probably guess, is a film that Mary Sweeney didn't just uh, edit, but also wrote. And here is a taste of that to take you into next month's Twin Peaks Cinema. Rose, darling, I've got to go see Lyle. I'm a netto at Salvin, and he's driving his lawnmower. What are you setting out to do here? Alvin, you're going to get blown right off the rope. <laughs>